Hebrews chapter 13, verses 9 through to 19. Don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good that God's grace makes our hearts strong. Don't depend on foods the law requires. They have no value for the people who eat them. Some worship at the holy tent, but we have an altar that they have no right to eat from. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy room. He brings their blood as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. Jesus also suffered outside the city gate. He suffered to make the people holy by spilling his own blood. So let us go to him outside the camp. Let us be willing to suffer the shame he suffered. Here we do not have a city that lasts, but we are looking for the city that is going to come. So let us never stop offering to God our praise through Jesus. Let us offer it as the fruit of lips that say they believe in him. Don't forget to do good. Don't forget to share with others. God is pleased with those kinds of offerings. Obey your leaders. Put yourselves under their authority. They keep watch over you. They know they are accountable to God for everything they do. Obey them so that their work will be a joy. If you make their work a heavy load, it won't do you any good. Pray for us. We feel sure we have done what is right. We long to live as we should in every way. I beg you to pray that I may return to you soon. Right. Well, good morning again. Welcome. It's great to be with you. Uh, we are continuing our journey through the book of Hebrews. This is the penultimate or the second to last uh, message in this series. And so uh, I really want you to have your Bible with you today. So get your smartphone, get a Bible if you need one. But before we do that, because this, is, this section is so focused on community and I realize we run on Baptist time here and many of us just sort of come in as sort of, you know, when we get here. Uh, I want to take a moment and I just want you to, to sort of stand up if you can, look around, greet somebody next to you, say welcome, it's, glad, it's good to see you. Just take a moment to do that if you don't mind. And if you don't have a Bible, take this chance to grab one. But let's greet one another. If you met somebody for the first time, now's a chance. Lock that name in. Lock in the name. There we go. Write it down. Quick, say, what was your name again? All right. Yeah, okay. I got you. All right. Uh, if you're joining us online, I hope you had time to uh, have a little break, get a notepad out, or uh, get your Bible out. We are coming to the conclusion of this letter, which has been exhorting us to see Jesus, to behold him. The idea is that through faith, we have the image of Christ before us, and that encourages us to persevere. Um, as, as we get into, I might get you, Josh, to move to the other start of my, my slides. We're not going through all this. We'll get there. It's what happens when you, there we go. All right. <laughs> uh, we get to this section, uh, verses 7 to 17, and with my apologies to Tobias. Um, when, when you send out the plan of what you're going to preach in the text, it, sometimes it can change. Uh, and so we're actually looking at verses 7 to 17 this week. Um, but hey, hopefully you heard a little bit of where we're going next week. 
so this this uh, this sermon is titled "Life Outside the Camp," and that's a metaphor. It's an image that I hope is going to become richer for you as we go through this passage today. But I, I do realize this is uh, the first Sunday post-election, and maybe some of you are feeling a bit outside uh, this morning. Maybe maybe you were in power, and now you're out of power. Maybe you were your party was out of power, and now it's in power. Um, I don't really know what to make of all this. I'm still, I've been to Canberra twice on two school camps and I'm still trying to get my head around preferential voting. I know you write a lot of numbers in boxes. I'm trying to work out how that reflects what, you know, what, uh, democracy. I'm not, that's not a knock. I'm just I'm trying to work out how that expresses itself. Uh, so maybe someone can explain that to me after the service. But regardless, regardless, there's always insiders and outsiders. Insiders and outsiders. Maybe you've felt like you've been in a, in a community. It could have been a church. It could have been, uh, could have been a, a dorm, you know, a dormitory that you lived in. It could have been uh, maybe high school, your friend group. But there's always this, this sense of uh, the inner ring and the outer ring. Are you part of the in crowd or are you part of the out crowd? I want you to take a moment right now and think about a time in your life where you felt like you were in a time when you felt like I, I was in the hub. <laughs> maybe it was a social thing, maybe it was a work thing, but, but you, you were the cat's pajamas. You, you, you just, you had it, you were in. What were some things that you recall about that experience? How did you feel? How was your life? How did you live? How did you use your time? What were the key relationships? What were those relationships like? Now I want you to take a moment, I want you to think about the last time, and it could be today, but the last time you felt truly ostracized and excluded. Just in your face, you don't belong to us, you're not a part of this group. We don't care whether you're here or not here, just be out. And now I want you to think, in your mind, what were the reasons why? What put you on the outside? Was that fair? Was it true? It's important to get this in our minds because this text before us operates strongly along principles of inclusion and exclusion. And to get our heads in that space, it's often helpful to reflect on how we've experienced that, whether it has anything to do with our faith or not. Maybe you, like me, were often the last one picked for the sporting team. Maybe you never felt like you were quite smart enough or with it enough. Maybe you didn't feel like you were cool enough. This text operates on those lines. Last week, uh, just to recap, verses one to six, the exhortation began, and, and at the end of the, the whole argument of Hebrews uh, is, is this idea that we need to persevere, and if we've really heard God rightly, if we've received this revelation of Jesus as we should, then our heart response will be gratitude. And so we stopped to ask the question, what does a grateful heart do? What, what is, what's gratitude look like? It's a life of worship, and we saw it's, it's, it's a life of worship where we release our lives to God according to his purposes and priorities. And there were a few really key areas there. One was suffering, how we love one another. Another one had to do with our sexual ethics, whether we keep the marriage bed pure or not. Another one had to do with money, and contentment and greed. So really some kind of some key, key issues. And we saw that, that a grateful heart sort of rests in God and, and, and accommodates his purposes and priorities in the way we live our lives in these key areas. This week, the question we're going to be asking is, what am I missing out on by being with Jesus? <laughs> yep, we're going to go there. <laughs> what am I missing out on by being with Jesus? I know we often, we might know the Sunday school answer. I might say, nothing. But I want you to just stop for a moment because I don't think the Bible says it's truly nothing. 
There is a cost of being a disciple. But what am I missing out on by being with Jesus? What, what, what does being a Christian mean that I have to let go of? Our big idea today is that Jesus is worth the price of exclusion. <laughs> you, may have, you may have been to, to an event, you had to fork out a lot of money. You say, well, I hope this is going to be a good concert, or I hope it's going to be a good show. And, and you know, they put this tag on it and said, this is the price of admission. If you want to be a part of this, this is what it costs. Well, here, it's sort of that idea, but it's flipped. And, and the text is going to show us that Jesus is worth the price of exclusion. Because being with Jesus... From the world's perspective, doesn't mean you're brought into the center of something. It means you're kicked out of something. You're kicked out of the club. You don't fit. You don't, you don't get all the trappings that come with belonging. Now, that's not to say there's no community for the Christian. There is. The church is the assembly of God's people. You're, you're brought into a community. It's not to say those things don't exist. But, but with respect to the world... You will not find a home if you belong to Jesus. And so really off the bat, one thing we need to do is we need to dispel this notion that we can have it all. We can dispel, we got to dispel this notion that, that we can have Jesus and everything the world has to offer. If you've been trying to, to do that calculus in your life and you're trying to put these things together, you say, well, you know, I want all the esteem, I want the riches, I want the praise, I want the, I want the popularity, and I, want, and I want everything that comes with being a disciple of Jesus. I want the, I want the communion with the Father. I want the forgiveness of sins. I want, I want to be under grace and not under law. I, I want to... Be empowered by the Holy Spirit. It, it, you try to hold all that together, you, you can't. John would write, he would say, and I'm paraphrasing here, to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. Not because God hates the world, but because the world has set itself up in rebellion against God. So this text is going to press on this, but it's going to push us into a place of recognizing that Jesus is worth the price of exclusion. What it's going to cost you to belong to Christ is nothing to what you gain from being with him. Simple truth is, discipleship is a path of rejection. But <laughs> discipleship is also the way to Jesus. <laughs> It's a way of rejection, but it's also the way to Christ. So if you want to be with Christ, we need to enter this, enter this process of discipleship. And by discipleship, I know it's, very, it's a term laden with a lot of Christian jargon, but really what it just means is it means to be a learner of Jesus, a learner and an imitator of Jesus. And so if you're going to, if you're going to model your life, if you're going to let Christ shape who you are, let his truth shape your mind and guide your conduct. If you're going to do that, then recognize that the fate that he bore is going to be similar to what you bear. Now, you're, not, you're likely, statistically, aren't going to be hung up on a cross or crucified or you probably even martyred necessarily, given where you live. But there is still a cost and there's still a rejection. But that same learning and that formation of following Jesus is also the way into relationship with him. That's the way of transformation. Our vision here at WDBC is that all people, men, women, and children, can be transformed by God's word and his spirit for faith in Jesus Christ. Discipleship is where that transformation happens. It happens in a relationship to Christ whereby you have adopted the posture of a learner. You say, I'm going to sit at your feet, Jesus. I'm going to accommodate your truth. I'm going to yield to your will. I'm going to receive your grace. I'm going to make use of the access you've given me to know my Father. And the good news is, because Jesus never changes, his grace never ends. You see, if you continue 
in this path of discipleship and you embrace what Jesus has given you, you, you can be settled and secure in knowing that this is not a relationship that's suddenly going to flip on you. This is not something that's suddenly going to, you know, you're going to wake up one day and Jesus is going to be like, ah, <laughs> change my mind. Oh, you did that? Ooh, well, oh, you know, when I said grace, I didn't really mean grace. You know, I, I just sort of meant like, I'm a nice guy. You know, like, well, you know, well, we can hang out and, and, you know, I'll tolerate a lot of what you have to do. But like, I didn't really mean like real forgiveness. Like, I didn't mean forgiveness for that. He's not going to do that. He bore our sin in his body on the tree. There is grace to be had in Jesus Christ. And the good news is, if Jesus never changes, then grace never ends. It's an abundant supply. And this ought to spur us to Christ. Just to give an overview, the passage here develops the pattern of a faith-filled response of gratitude to God for his promise of salvation. Again, just the picture is God has spoken to the world his gospel, his good news, this message of his son, whom he has sworn an oath to that he will be a king and a priest forever, that he will be the mediator of a new covenant. This is the message that God has delivered to the nations and to his own people, Israel. And the writer to the Hebrews is, is, is gathering the church around and, and he's saying, are you listening to this? Are you hearing this properly? If you've heard it properly, he says, you'll be grateful. And he, as, as that instruction gets borne out in chapter 13, last week we saw to, to have a life of faith is to continue to love like Jesus. Here we're going to see to have a life of faith is to continue to stand with Jesus, to identify with him. The next week we'll see to have a life of faith is to continue to commune with Jesus. But this week, the focus is on standing with Jesus, identifying with him. The context this morning is that the commands in this section are designed to reinforce loyalty and a sense of privilege, note this, among a group that feels itself deprived or excluded as a minority group. So if it feels a little bit like, why are you telling me the bad thing's the good thing? It's the, the, that's, that's what it's designed to do. It's designed to, to reinterpret for the, the listeners, reinterpret for this church that's feeling a bit complacent, that's, that's thinking, what's really the point of, of being a Christian and having this label and, and, and bearing with the, the social isolation, the imprisonment, the, you know, the abuse of Rome, like the, the, the abuse of other Jews? Like what, what's, the, what's the point in, in going through this? And so there's a reinterpretation that's taking place here. And he's trying to say, remain loyal because it's a privilege to be a part of this outsider group. Now, the structure of the passage follows, interestingly enough, sort of an outside in. So I want you to think of kind of three concentric circles, okay? Three concentric circles. So the passage begins and ends with a discussion on leaders and followers. This is the very practical side of standing with Jesus. And the spiritual side, in the, sort of that next layer in, that, that next circle in, you have a discussion of altars and sacrifices where, where we meet with God and, or how we meet with God and what we offer to God. And then in, in the hub, in the center, is the gospel itself. It's the work of Christ where we see reproach and redemption, insult and salvation coming together in the ministry of Jesus Christ. So, if you just read this, if you just read verses 7 to 17, it, it, it looks a bit like kind of a wandering path, but, but it's starting on the outside with the practical, with leaders and followers, and moves to the middle, the spiritual altars, how we commune with God and what we bring to him, and then it moves to the center of Jesus Christ, the gospel, his, his reproach, and his redemption being one simultaneously to the same event. In terms of our outline, where we're going this morning, this passage is going to call us to persevere in faith with loyalty to Christ, even if it means bearing reproach. And there's really three reflections that, that help us remain loyal to Jesus as we follow. So if this, if this is a message about standing with Christ, if it's a message about loyalty 
and continuing with Jesus, you, you might want to think of it as people trying to pull you off course, people trying to get you to stray. And there's three things as we follow that, that we can reflect on. The first is, in order to stay the course, we need to know who to follow after. We're going to see we follow after leaders who finish. Leaders who finish. Next, we're going to learn what to feed on. This doesn't make much sense now, but we feed on the altar of grace. And finally, we need to know where to find Jesus. If you can't locate Jesus, your discipleship is going to become a very tiring and wearisome task. All right, with that, let's pray. Father, would you make much of your glory through your word this morning? May you encourage us. May you strengthen us through the Holy Spirit to see and to know all that you have set aside for us in Christ. Father, may we be faithful to you and may we serve you boldly. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, first, who to follow? Uh, Look with me at verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The understanding in the community is if you're in a journey, if you're traveling somewhere, you're, you're following after somebody. They've gone before you. We'll see in a minute, Jesus is the ultimate pioneer. He's the pioneer and perfecter of this way. But there's other people who've gone ahead of them. And so he tells the community, he says, Remember your leaders who went before you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, it might be hard to see this in English, but, but the way that construction is put together is, is in such a way that it's, it reads as if they've, they've passed away, they've died. So he's saying, think about the leaders who have perished. Those who've gone before you, you knew them, they're, they're, they're not walking with the Lord uh, because, well, sorry, they're now with the Lord. They're not walking anymore because their journey is done. And he says, consider the outcome of their way of life. If you think about our Christian life as a pilgrimage into the heavenly city, we can become discouraged if we think we're going it alone, can't we? A number of new believers tell me, they say, look, Jonathan, I'm so discouraged because I don't know how all these denominations work. If there's one way and one Jesus and one Lord, why do we have all these different these different denominations and all these different things. It's so confusing. It is confusing and there's historical reasons for them and and some of them are good and some of them are bad. Some of them are more helpful than others. But he's not calling them to consider a tradition. He's calling them to consider people. Consider leaders who finished well and then imitate their faith. I want to ask you some questions. Who have you known who's finished well in faith? I mean, they've gone to the grave. They've gone to the grave maintaining their testimony, maintaining their witness, maintaining their trust in Jesus Christ as a Savior. Who do you know that would fit into that category? My guess is the list isn't super long. Some of you just haven't lived that long. (laughs) But there is something to be said for considering how people finish. How how do you end the race? It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Even if we look at Christian leaders today, you can go back 10 years and you can say, this person is so amazing. They're such a powerful, gifted leader. Look look at God's anointed. And you fast forward 10 years and you're like, eh. Take that book off the shelf. Take that book off the shelf. Put that one away. Stop bringing that person up in conversation. Delete those sermons from the library. Right? It's difficult. How did they finish? How did they finish? How did they do it? What was their... What was the way that they passed through? You see, the old saints, they would look at death as as the crossing of the Jordan, the last kind of hurdle. There's an art to dying well. There's an art to dying as a person of faith and with dignity. Who's done this? How did they do it? What can you imitate about their trust? 
about how they loved Jesus. I'm not saying how do we, you know, let's count their conversions and let's count, let's count how much money's in the bank account of their ministry by the end of their life or, or how many churches did they plant? No, no, no. How, what about their faith? What about their faith can you imitate? You're going to find so much more encouragement from that than you're going to find encouragement from trying to compare your faith to some mega church pastor or some Christian leader who's got, a, you know, 50, 60 different books. You, you're looking, if you're looking at them and you're saying, I need to be that, that's not what the, God's calling you to do. He's saying, think about the people who told you the word of God. Who are the ones who spoke the gospel to you, lived the gospel to you, and died trusting in the gospel. You might want to make a list. These people are worth reflecting on. I'm so blessed to have grandparents who knew the Lord and trusted the Lord. Oh, what a heritage, what a privilege. Not all of my relatives received that heritage in the way that I received that heritage, but I can tell you their faith was not wasted. And having watched now as two of them have gone to be with the Lord, knowing that they maintained their faith, that they maintained their witness, that's a comfort to me. And that should be a comfort to you who are further along in this journey of pilgrimage that you are to finish well. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. We are watching you. You have taught us. You've spoken truth to us. We've watched you wrestle with how that works out in your life. Don't throw it away. Don't throw it away at the end of your life for a fling. Don't throw it away for more money. Don't throw it away for, for, for power or, or a little bit more of a cushy setup. Don't throw it away for pride, please. How many of us have been bold for Christ and then we feel weak, but because we're too proud, we won't be honest about our weakness until the whole thing comes crumbling down in a great public collapse. Don't do that. None of those things are worth it. Yes, we follow Christ. Yes, he is the captain of our salvation. Yes, we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we're under grace and we're forgiven. But we are also a community that is shaping one another. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is indwelling each of us who believe in Jesus Christ. And if the Spirit of God is indwelling me and is the same Spirit who's indwelling you and you and you and you and you, if that Spirit is indwelling all of us, should we not expect the same Holy Spirit to be forming us? And if I'm being formed by you, it means I'm watching you. It means I'm listening to you. We don't simply love each other, we shape each other. What can you imitate about these leaders and their trust? I, I'll move off this in just a second, but I got a list. I found a list and, and uh, it was in my file somewhere. Someone had given it to me and um, I'm terrible with paperwork. So if you ever give me something and I don't do something with it, just, just call me. <laughs> Say, I gave you that thing. Can you follow up? Yep, sorry, I'll, go, I'll dig it up somewhere, right? I, I'm hopeless. But I was going through my files uh, and, and I found this list and it was every minister from this congregation since it started. And, and it was before it was even a church. It was in, um, I think it was, ninth, I think it was someone's going to correct me here, but I want to say in the 1920s, there was a Bible study that started in this area. And so they had a list from the leaders of that Bible study all the way through the ministers of the fellowships till it became uh, the church, uh, till it became a Baptist church in South Windsor, till, you know, we became Windsor District Baptist Church. And, and this, it was just names and dates. It was names and dates. It was, it was spaced out, you know, fairly evenly. And it went on, it went on to the back page. And I was struck by a number of things by this. 
First of all, it was, it was very odd for me to be sitting there looking and, and saying, wow, this is, um, these, these are people who were in my shoes. These people who have gone before me. And I saw the length of that list of names and I thought, what, is, what a privilege. What a privilege I have to, to, to take up this mantle. The next thing I was overwhelmed by was the sheer number of names. And some of this might have to do with the way that, that ministers worked back in those days, but to put it into perspective, we would have had probably at least 15 different names on that list. The majority of the people who shepherded this church as a pastor were here for two or three years, sometimes less. The longest tenured pastor of Windsor Baptist is Noel Edwards. He was here for 15 years. After that, as a gentleman, I believe it's George Stubbs, who was here on two different occasions, a four-year stint. So if you add those up, that's eight years. I'm third. I feel like I got here a week ago. That says something to me. That says something to me. That turnover, that turnover has an impact on, on, on the life of the church and on the receiving of, of, of leadership. And I, I look and I see, you know, when I, when I encounter distrust and, and when I encounter questions about, you know, about does my, does my pastor love me? Does my pastor care about me? Does, you know, or is someone just gonna leave? And I look at a legacy of people who, for whatever reason, I'm not judging, I don't know why, maybe, they were, maybe it was all good reasons, but for whatever reason, it was a fairly quick turnaround, particularly into the 70s. But again, maybe that's just how they did it. We are shaping each other. So we need to know who to follow. Secondly, we need to know what to eat. If you're on a journey, <laughs> you, you, you inevitably get hungry, especially if you're traveling by foot. Um, you get hungry, you want to know, where am I going to find food? Uh, here in this next section, we look at where the Christian relies for strength. Follow with me, we'll go from, from verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now, this may feel a bit distant to us, so I'm gonna try to bring it a little bit closer. What's happening here is there's new teachers who are coming in. They're, they're, they're speaking about Jesus and they're speaking about the kingdom of God, but they're speaking about it in a way that it, the, the teaching is, it's different. It's different. And, you know, if you had the same teacher for a long time or, or if, if, you know, you've been in the same thing for a while, you sort of get tired and what, what's new sounds like it's true. And so here's this group who's, who's, who's dealing with teachings that are very diverse, that are very different, strange, you could say uh, not orthodox. And they're thinking, you know, this sounds good. Now, one of those teachings was that, look, to really, to really be close to God, you need to eat this particular food and you need to eat it in this way. You need to eat it at this time. And they were holding that over the people. And there were people who were getting carried away by that. The idea is that they've been picked up and uprooted and shuffled along in a different direction. You need to understand this is what false teaching does. So if you find an idea or a notion that feels like it's suddenly like pulling you up and kind of shifting you, just, just beware for a minute, okay? If it, if, it, if it comes on with that sudden rush of like, oh, wow, here we go, and, you, and, and I'm going to be in a totally other different place, be wary of that. Sometimes it's a season of breakthrough. The Lord has given you, you know, new understanding and new insight to know, to know what he's doing. But, but often, 
often it, it, can, it can also come with like, well, you're really missing out over here. And that's what this teaching was doing. It was saying, you know, you're not really close enough to God. If you want to, if you want to have this real relationship with God, you really need to eat these foods and in this way. You, know, you can walk through, walk the shelves of Kurong and you say, well, you know, if you want to be close to God, you got to eat what Jesus ate. Really? No. <laughs> you know? Or do the Ezekiel diet. That's the next thing, you know, if, we do, if I do the Ezekiel diet, you're going to lose weight, you're going to feel better about yourself, and you're going to be better. Look, if you've got a nutrition issue, deal with your nutrition issue. But let's not infuse God and the privilege of his grace. Let's not confuse that with all these other hurdles and these human loops that we're trying to put in the way of that. I've tried to summarize this by saying legalism is a snare, because it leads me to establish my own righteousness. If, if this practice or this behavior is leading you to feel more confident, more righteous than you were when you just had Christ, beware. If you are closer to God than where Jesus brought you, beware. The temptation is to say, oh, this is how I'm going to establish my righteousness. Now, again, be discerning, right? If you're, if you're walking in sin and the Spirit's saying, I don't want you to do that, listen to the Spirit and stop doing that. But the Spirit leads you into truth. The Spirit doesn't say, you know, what he did on the cross, that was fine, but really, really what you need to do is this. No, the work of the Holy Spirit is to magnify Christ, to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, to show us our need for Jesus, and to point out his sufficiency. So oftentimes the ministry of the Holy Spirit will work in such a way that you grow in awareness of your sinfulness, but simultaneously the Spirit will assure you of the grace and the sufficiency of God in Jesus Christ. If you're growing in awareness of your sinfulness, but you're not being led in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, that is not the work of the Holy Spirit. That is often the work of the enemy or sometimes just our flesh, our own sinfulness, trying to say, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. The picture here is that these, these special offerings that that this church community was supposed to be eating from. And you can see how it works. They were making them feel excluded. They're saying, oh, you know, you, you see, we're the insiders. We're the really spiritual people because we do this practice. Note, Jesus gives true grace from God's altar. The picture here is, again, if you're trying to go back to the old traditions and the old ways and some sort of earthly, earthly ritual, you've, you've missed the point the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, sorry, there's multiple covenants in the Bible, but the Mosaic covenant in the Bible is the one covenant that did not have attached to it, this is an eternal promise. Jesus Christ established a new covenant after he fulfilled the old covenant. He fulfilled the old covenant requirements and fulfilling that, he established a new one. And now we relate to God through Jesus Christ, not through our rituals. Jesus gives us this true grace from God's altar, from, from access to God, from, from being brought near to him through Jesus' work in heaven, as we've been learning in Hebrews, that's where you find grace. Faith is born and sustained by grace. You believe, the fact that you believe is a testimony to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Faith itself is a gift. Look it up, Ephesians chapter 2. Faith is a gift. But faith is not only born of grace, it's sustained by grace. And that's the picture here. If you and I are trying to walk the pilgrim way, if we're trying to journey as disciples of Christ, and we are relying on our own strength, you will grow weary. You will fall by the wayside. Your heart can't take it. It's only the grace of God. That is your strength. It's what God has done for you. It's the love of God poured out for you through his son, Jesus, on the cross. That 
is where your strength lies. The two symbols that we have, the two distinctives of the church for all time are directly tied to this. Baptism, which is, which is a celebration of dying with Christ. And the point is, you die, you can't do anything else. What's the difference between baptism and taking a bath? You can take a bath by yourself. You can't baptize yourself. Every element of baptism is meant to teach you something about the nature of your salvation. So when you go in the water, yes, you're participating in a cleansing. When you go in the water and you, you're brought down, you're, you're reenacting a spiritual burial that's already taken place. And when you come up, you're reenacting a spiritual and future physical resurrection that will take place. But you are not doing this yourself. Do you know why? Because the person, often me or another pastor, standing in the water with you is there representing God. Because in that we are saying it is all of God, it is all of grace. You see, that is where we find our strength. Your heart can feed on that. Oh, don't tie your strength to your spiritual performance. Now, that's where the enemy comes and says, oh, what you do doesn't matter. No, we know that's not true. Why would God go to all this trouble if that didn't matter? If sin didn't matter? But just because sin matters doesn't mean you're saved by your ability to not sin or your ability to go through a ritual. The other, the other distinctive we have is communion. It's the Lord's Supper, which is an ongoing celebration. What are we doing in that? We are saying the, the lamb has been sacrificed. The thing that will atone for our sin has died. The blood has been shed and we are now cleansed. And by partaking of the bread and the cup, we are saying we are taking the life of Christ into us. We are not bringing out the life of God out of us. No, our hearts are desperately wicked. When we take communion, we are reenacting spiritually what we have been doing from the beginning, which is taking the life of God into us in the person of Jesus Christ died, buried and risen from the dead. You see? Is your heart feeding on a diet of grace? What is carrying you through? We understand this in a, in a physiological way. If we don't eat, if we don't drink, eventually our bodies will give out. If your heart doesn't nourish on the grace of God to you in Jesus Christ, your faith will give out. Thirdly, where Jesus is. We not only need to know like, okay, who am I trying to keep in step with? What's the right direction? We also need to know how we strengthen ourselves. But thirdly, we need to know where Jesus is. I gotta locate Christ. If the first two points were a bit vague for you, please wake up, listen to this one. Where is Jesus? As we journey on the pilgrim way, the ultimate motivation to remain loyal is our desire to be with Jesus. Your knowledge of Christ, you're, you're journeying with him, you're going to him. Notice as we come to verse uh, uh, 11 to 14. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the holy place as an offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. This is how they purified, uh, the, this is how they did the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. They used it a few other places as well. And so Jesus also suffered outside the camp. Now here he's referencing Jesus' death where he's led out of the city of Jerusalem and he's crucified at Golgotha. Jesus also suffered outside the city gate, verse 12, to make the people holy through his own blood. We just talked about that. Only the blood of Jesus makes you holy. Verse 13, let us then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. Really important distinction. Your discipleship is a journey to Jesus. It's not just a journey into rejection. I feel like there's some Christians who really embrace this side of things 
You know, they're like, I, you know, I want to be the rebel. I'm, you know, I'm the person nobody likes. And they take that, I, they take that and they wear it as a badge, you know. Yeah, I know nobody likes me. Come persecute me, you know. And they sort of get this, this high off of people not liking them. And that, that becomes the expression of their identity. The point is not go outside the city so that people hate you. The point is go outside the city because that's where Jesus is. You go to Jesus, and so when we talk about the cost of discipleship and rejection, we're not, we're not holding up the cost of discipleship like, you know, masochists who are, who are saying, you know, just hurt me more. I just want to be hurt when I feel pain spiritually. That's how I feel close to God. No. No. Perish the thought. No. We embrace what comes with bearing the name of Christ. We embrace this because of how good it is to be with Jesus. tell you what, social media is like the wild west these days, particularly among Christians. If you're not, if you're, if you're not, if you're not in it, I don't, you know, tread carefully, right? You get people really hostile, really angry, really saying all sorts of things on social media. And the love of Jesus is, a love for Jesus is seemingly missing. Oftentimes. But the call for rejection is, is to be with Jesus. That's where he is. That's where we bear that altar. To bear his name, to stand with him, means to take the rejection he bore. We talked about this at the outset. Notice here that the call to go is also a call to leave. If you're going to go to be with Jesus, it means you will have to leave the city. You say, what's the city? This is a question lots of scholars like to debate about. And there is a sense in which, you know, you could say, well, maybe the city was Judaism and maybe, you know, you know these Christians are called not to go back into Ju- Judaism. I, I think that's a fair interpretation, but I also think it's really convenient. I think actually if you go back to the end of Hebrews chapter 11 and sort of the, the last example before we get to Jesus, who remembers the last example in Hebrews chapter 11 before we get to Jesus by, by name? It's Rahab. The culmination of that is Rahab, which you say, of all the heroes of the faith, why, why, would, they, why would they end with Rahab? But look what she did. She changed her allegiance in the city. She left her own people to identify with the people of God. She picked a new city. The call to go and be with Jesus is also a call to leave. And here I want to ask you, what rejection are we unwilling to bear? This is a, think about it. What, 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 what tie, what, what, what thing tethered to me am I not willing to let go of? I bet if you tug on that, you might find an idol. You might find something that's captivated your heart. All right. The rest of this passage is all application. This is not what I'm saying to you. I mean, I am going to say it to you, but this is what the Word of God is saying to us. First, Go to Jesus. I picked up this phrase in a commentary. It's it's a familiar phrase now, but go to Jesus and burn the boats. Make no provision for the flesh. Don't make a way to return. Don't, Don't set out with him with half a mind back there. Jesus said in a parable, he said, if you set your hand to the plow, don't look back. Otherwise, you're not worthy of the kingdom. You're not fit to be my disciple. You can't be a disciple if you got one eye looking back. When he says go to Jesus, it means pursue this path of discipleship, this path of becoming a learner of Jesus, of sitting in his feet, being transformed by his word and by the Holy Spirit with the expectation that we will meet him physically even as we have met him spiritually already. Secondly, cultivate a desire for God's city. 
Verse 13, let us go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. NIV's kind of watered it down a little bit. We are looking for a, the city that is to come. It, the, the phrase indicates strong desire. I have strong desire. I am longing for the kingdom to come. Are you and I longing for the heavenly city? God, would you give us a zeal, a zeal and a passion to know you and to be in your kingdom? What if that was the consuming desire of our hearts, to be with God? It's not, well, yeah, I'm looking forward to that, you know. Just like I'm looking forward to the start of football season and I'm looking forward to, you know, when the sun comes out again. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, heaven, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, I don't like that. Yeah, be kind of nice, you know. Streets of gold and all that. Yeah, yeah, it should be good. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Oh, but did you see the game last night? Oh, man. Thirdly, through Jesus, verse 15, therefore let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. And then he's going to explain what it is, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Warning, warning, going to get uncomfortable here. When he says offer a sacrifice of praise, he's not saying walk around, God, you're great. God, you're great. Here it is. Here's another one. God, you're so fantastic. Wow, you know. You're really cool, God. You're awesome. That is not what he means. He says, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name is the name of Jesus on our lips. Note the connection between evangelism and praise. Did you know that God gets praise when you speak the name of Jesus into this world? He doesn't say, the fruit of open lips that love to sing worship songs at church. I know we're in a building but we will continue to be the church after we leave this building. We got a whole series coming up on that. I won't digress. Our sacrifice of praise is a confession of his name. And if you're feeling challenged, I was challenged. I was challenged this week. Somebody told me, they said, you know, most people, when you say, hey, you speak the name of Jesus, they're overcome with this sense of fear. That wasn't challenging because I say, oh, I can relate to that. But they said, but behind fear is really pride. (laughs) That one kind of hurt. Don't make this harder than it is. The word says, a sacrifice of praise is the name of Jesus on your lips. Don't put the name of Jesus in a box that's only for Christian things. Talk about him. Speak about him. Live, live as if he exists. Not like some distant relative that you only bring up when the other relatives are around. Fourthly, remember to share your goods. Verse 16, do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. You know, it warms God's heart when we let go of our things, we let go of our possessions, when we we show kindness to each other. Finally, verse 17, have confidence, again, sorry, NIV, really respect the writers, but we've overcomplicated here. It's just obey your leaders, is what it says. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. 
Obey your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Okay. At Windsor District Baptist Church, your elders are, in no particular order, John Camp, Harry DeRoy, Jonathan Platt, Warren Johnson, Alan Bolas, Bill Rusin, and myself. We are your elders. I just, can I get, if you're an elder and you're present here, can you just raise your hand right now? Okay. There's a couple who are not here. Okay. This verse says that God is going to ask us how we watched over your well-being. That is a great responsibility. There is no one among those names that I listed who takes that responsibility lightly. When we ask the church to vote on our eldership and on our diaconate, we are asking them to discern among us who God has appointed as leaders, who God has, has called to this role. It's not a popularity contest. It's not, it's, it's not democracy. It's the discernment of the church. Those people that I've mentioned, myself included, we have to give an account. That means a few things. First, we need to know you. Please don't hide from us. Please don't be secretive about that. When we want to know how you're going, we really want to know how you're going. Number two, When we tell you that we have prayerfully considered and are trying to speak into a situation, regard that. And unless you have some strong biblical basis for rejecting that or other witnesses to back that up, please heed that. That's what you're called to do. And thirdly, Don't undermine those people. The Bible says that you're not to bring an accusation without another witness. Now I realize that can, that, you say, oh, that's putting a lot of power, you know, we're a Baptist church, Jonathan. Whatever, open the Bible. Talk to me from the word. The word clearly says, if you're going to bring an accusation against an elder, and look, there's sometimes that we do wrong things, and I am the last person who's gonna say that I get it right all the time. I do not. That's why we need to be in relationship. We need to hear from each other. You can correct me, absolutely. But there's a difference between a correction, a suggestion, and an accusation, or a condemnation. Now, what I don't want you to miss is the function of all of this. The, the whole purpose in all of this is so that you will stand firm and continue on the path of discipleship. It's to make sure that you end up with Jesus. All of these things. You might want to take a look and say, you know what? I'm going to focus on one of these things this week. You figure out which, which it is. But pick one of those things. Focus on it. Say, this is what I need to do this week. It's going to help me stay firm in my conviction. I'm going to invite the band up. And as we just continue to contemplate this, this, this truth that Jesus is worth the price of exclusion, what I want you what I want to leave you with is the story of, of Moses. When it says, go to, go to Jesus outside the camp, there's a number of different references it touches on, but I think probably the most powerful is when the rebellion happened and the, and the people worshipped the golden calf. Moses was up, 
he came down the mountain, he found them worshiping the golden calf. God said after that, that he would not put his presence in the camp. Moses set up the tent of meeting outside the camp. And that's where Moses would go and commune with God. Because at that time, the camp, even though they had all this journeying with, with the Lord, at that time, the camp was a state of rebellion. And God says, I am not putting my presence in there. When Jesus came to his own people, they rebelled against him. And he died outside the city. He died outside the camp. And he is still outside the camp of this world. Go be with God. Go feed on grace. And watch where you're walking.